I'm not there to get respect. I'm not there to be having a nice experience. I'm there to make a great image. And if I can walk out with one or two awesome pictures, nothing else matters. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Howard and welcome to the Musea podcast. Hey, it's Chris Buck. I am a photographer known for my unusual portraits. Uh, when I was in high school, I was pretty obsessed with um, popular culture. And at some point, I discovered mass media that, and that that could be a job. And at that point, it became clear that this was going to be a goal. Like that was going to, in some way, I was going to work in media, whether it be advertising or working in a magazine, book publishing, whatever it's going to be, it had to be pop culture and mass media. That's where my, my heart lie. And over time, I figured out that um, I guess where I could have the most control as well as interesting access was being a photographer. My father worked for Kodak when I was growing up, and so cameras and photography were just a very easy, familiar thing. So, you know, picking up a camera and taking pictures was, you know, kind of second nature in, in some way. So when did you, um, so when did you, so you went to college, grad, when did you graduate and when did you, did you start taking jobs? shortly after that, or was there a gap in there? Well, when I, I went to college um, in the mid-80s and graduated in 1987. While I was in college, I did a lot of things, um, mostly around music. I managed a band. I worked for a music paper as a photo editor and a VC photographer. Um, and I made um, compilation tapes of local and international bands, um, all, you know, all original music. So I was really deep in that world, and kind of doing lots of things all at once. At a certain point, I had to make a decision, and I decided just before my final year of school that I was going to be a photographer and give it a go full-time and really, you know, treat that as my vocation. Um, and so at the time, you know, understandably, I was mostly shooting musicians and bands. And so, um, but I, I quickly transitioned out of that into shooting all kinds of people in the culture, politicians, writers, people in film and television, um, and that became my obsession, uh, you know, for basically the next 30 years. Yeah, so I follow you on, well, I've been following your career for a while, ever since, um, you know, I got out of photo school, uh, you know, really following your work for the last 15, 20 years, um, and then following you on Facebook, and yeah, I recently saw <clears throat> your book sale, and uh, was excited to see, uh, yeah, you're releasing a book. So uh, I really appreciate you for giving me kind of a sneak peek at that. Uh, really blew me away flipping, you know, just flipping through everything. Um, it's really well put together. Um, so congrats on just doing a really good book. Um, Thank that. you. Yeah. Um, I guess let's talk Only about... 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> just 30 years. Um, so from your perspective, for you, like what, just what's the book about? Um, just from in your own words. I remember the last, the last job I had was working for a, uh, a national music magazine in Canada called Graffiti, and I was their photo editor, and it was like I have a part-time job. And I remember sitting in their office and thinking, you know, I was kind of planning out, you know, leaving that job and just being a photographer. And I remember sitting at my desk and thinking about, I was actually thinking about Arnold Newman and how he had this super long career photographing, um, you know, artists and personalities and such. And 
And I thought, I want to do that too. That's what I want to do. I just want to shoot famous people in my way, in my personal whatever way, for 40 years. And, um, you know, as all, you know, young photographers imagine, they imagine they're going to do these awesome monographs that are going to be like these hardbound, you know, versions of, of their their career and their work. And, and that's what I was imagining. That I would, I, I, you know, I kind of thought I'd do it maybe after 20 years, but, you know, do the monograph. But uh, that didn't work out, and I ended up doing it at 30 years, and it kind of worked out. You know, I think it worked out better this way. But, yes, that, that was kind of my, my vision and my goal for it. Um, you know, I was a big fan of people like Newman and Irving Penn, and I kind of, it's funny because that kind of that approach to being a photographer in the kind of uppercase P, um, you know, kind of went out of favor in a way, like as my career developed, that kind of goal of being a, you know, portraitist of, of highly achieved people, what sort of went out of fashion. And it's sort of a funny thing to be doing this book at this time when it's kind of not really something people do much anymore, but that was always my goal and always my interest. And, uh, I, I charged ahead nonetheless. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, got to be better for fulfilling on a personal level. I mean, I think any time that you can have a vision for yourself, especially decades down the road, and then you actually bring that into the world, is uh, it's got to feel fantastic. Well, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty obsessed person, and you know, once I, you know, once I kind of got the green light that the project was going to come to fruition now and come out, you know, like come out now, I really, you know, I spent a couple years just obsessively putting together the files and the stories, you know, collecting older stories and rewriting them and reforming them and formatting them for this, for this context, um, you know, but going back to images uh, from the decades and, you know, going through and making a wider edit and then working with some people to help me narrow it down and then working on the files, it just was a total, like, full-on obsession um, from you know, morning to night. It was like crazy. Mm. What do you think was the hardest process of making a book? The hardest? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. Well, the hardest is finding someone to pay for it. <laughs> I think is to be, to be totally honest. Um, in the end, I ended up um, self-publishing. I formed an imprint and then published my own book. And, um, and then I did a Kickstarter to raise most of the funds to pay for uh, the printing and the and the production. You know, the the resources do exist to do it on your own. You know, in my case, I worked with a design team called Demo, D-E-M-O, and they they did all the design and, you know, the layouts and sequencing and all that, and they, but they also sourced the printer um, who would, you know, print the book and do all the proofing and all that, as well as helping me find, like, a warehouse who could warehouse the books as well as do fulfillment. I mean, it was pretty, pretty crazy. And, you know, it's sort of a funny thing where they're now working as a kind of liaison for photographers to, to self-publish their books. And it's a, it's, it's just nothing that probably could have existed even five years ago. Mm. What, did, uh, what did you enjoy the most about making the book? The process of going through the work and choosing what would be in, you know, choosing not only like what sessions, but what images from each session was really fun because, you know, obviously the book has many pictures that people would be familiar with. Uh, they're just, you know, part of the culture. But there's so much work that, you know, either sessions I'd kind of decided were 
not successful or, uh, you know, maybe people who were, you know, kind of interesting when I saw with them, but became much more well-known and recognized later on. So going through and finding that work in my archives and including in the book was super fun to, you know, have pictures of people like Questlove or Connie Britton, um, Mary Tyler Moore, you know, images that were essentially like unknown by me then end up, you know, having like this whole like special life in the book now. I was looking at the book yesterday and I saw that Connie Britton photo. I had to like kind of take a double take. I was like, is that? Con-? And I was like, yep, that's her. Yeah, I mean, it's from like 95 or something. It's crazy. So definitely want to point people where to get the book. So where can they get a copy of it? So the best way to get to it um, is to go to the website for the book, chrisbuckoneasy.com. Um, all one all one word. Um, and alternatively, it's also on Amazon. Um, so if you want to get a signed copy, you go to my website, the Uneasy website. If you just want a straight old, old-fashioned copy, you can go to Amazon. Overall, how do you define portraiture? I would define portraiture as a picture of a person or people that is directed. That is, the subject knows they're being photographed and they are in some way, you know, cooperating. Um, and that's, you know, that's it. I mean, that's, that's not necessarily like a great portrait, but that is a portrait. If you take a long lens to the park and you're photographing people, you know, kind of sitting, uh, picnicking or whatever, I don't think it's a portrait. Um, the, the subject needs to be aware that they're being photographed and uh, in some way be, you know, cooperating. If you're at the park and you went up to someone and said, hey, I'm going to take your picture, and they're like, okay, that's cool, and then you take the picture, then it's a portrait. Even, even if you were to do it exactly the same way as you would have if you hadn't told them. But the, the, the sense of it being, um, the subject being aware of being photographed is, is part of the process of it being a portrait. It, it's sort of a funny question because my first book is a series of portraits where the people are not visible. And I do identify it as a portrait book, um, but they are cooperating. They are like they are directed portraits. They just happen to be hiding in the pictures, so you can't see them. How for you? Like how and when did you come to realize that you wanted to kind of approach portraiture from a, a bit of a different view? I think from the beginning, I I really wanted to make portraits that were that were different. I mean, I know like some photographers when they're photographing someone famous, they're they're trying to make like the ultimate portrait of Neil Young. Like, the, you know, they want Neil Young to look as Neil Young as possible in, like, the ultimate way that, like, really becomes the iconic image of this person. Whereas when I go to photograph someone like that, I want to make something that is, is a surprising take on them or, or an unusual take. And, and frankly, you know, I think my portraits are really kind of as much about me as they are about the people I'm photographing whether I'm photographing someone famous or, or someone who's just a regular person, um, I really don't hold back in putting myself into the pictures. Um, I remember even early on, like just even as a student, you know, someone asked me, you know, do you shoot self-portraits? And I, I responded, all my portraits are self-portraits. So I was reading through your uh, introduction uh, of the book, uh, Sheila Hetty, Hetty? Or Hetty? How do you say her yeah, last name? Correct. Okay. Um, yeah, just what she wrote, which was fantastic. Um, and uh, one of the quotes I pulled out of there, which I really loved from her, was um, 
she says, so many of the people he photographs have an uneasy relationship to the camera, the environment, to their bodies. Um, what, I guess, I would just like to get your opinion on that quote and if you agree with that or if you have a different take. No, I think it's a fair quote. I would just say that that, that uneasiness or discomfort with their bodies is it's probably more about me than it is about the subjects. Um, I mean, it may be, I guess it's there in, in all humanity in some way, but it's something that I'm very interested in. And at some point, it became almost my singular focus in making portraits was, was kind of, you know, kind of nudging people into these sort of poses and spaces where they were, like, looking awkward. Most subjects want to put their best foot forward, and that's normal and it's healthy, that they want to look good. They want to look dignified and healthy and such. Uh, when their portrait's being made. But, you know, my goal is to show something more interesting, more nuanced, more reflecting the human condition. And I do what I can to kind of nudge them to get into the place where something more revealing, something more telling is going to come out. And, you know, whatever. I've got multiple ways of doing it. Um, and, you know, not that, it's, not that they're like secrets or anything, but they're, you know, they're pretty straightforward, you know, talking to people and being nice and, you know, asking for what I want. I mean, one of the biggest things is really, if you want something, you ask for what you want and you, you kind of don't oversell it. You just sort of say, hey, let's do this. And they either say yes or they say no. And if they say yes, you get it as quickly as you can before they change their mind. And what do you do if they say no? Do you move on to another idea or how do, how do you work that? I mean, it's funny, you know, I was doing a talk the other day to a group of students and, you know, one of them asked me, like, with great trepidation, you know, what do you do when people say no? I say, well, I go to the next idea. You know, you go in there with a dozen and if they do, like, four or five of them, you're good. Do you, I was wondering how you capture your ideas or concepts. In general, um, ideas come from having an assignment. So, you know, I'll get an assignment from a magazine and I'll research the people, research what they're working on, what, you know, what they're promoting or whatever, but also their whole history. And then I'll sit down with a, just a blank piece of paper and write down whatever ideas come to mind. And I try to keep it very open and really let it flow. I really have no boundaries of what I write down. So, you know, a lot of things I write down are either impractical or are just too weird or perverted that, you know, the subject will never do. But I, in that first go-around, I try to be very open. Um, and then from there, I kind of whittle down to ones that might be more practical. So part of it is I feel like I want to go too far so that, in a way, interesting things can come out that maybe I can find a compromised version of that crazy idea that, that might actually get them together. Usually it's about a week to get, to get ready, you know, before a shoot. Um, so, you know, it's plenty of time. I think, frankly, the smart photo editors who assign me will, will, you know, come to me within like a day of the assignment and say, all right, you know, what are your ideas? And so... I'll need to come up with ideas very quickly for them um, because, you know, it, sometimes you, it might involve props or, you know, maybe getting a permit for shooting in a certain location. So the sooner ideas can be, can be brought forth, the, the better it is for the whole project. Hey everyone, I want to take a quick break from the show. Uh, we will be back in just a second, but I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, first, we have a Patreon page for the podcast at patreon.com slash musea. And that is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Musea. So what Patreon is is a service that allows people 
to support their favorite creators. And your support through Patreon helps us invest in quality production for the show. And it moves us toward our goal of creating in-depth episodes uh, that require a team of people. There are multiple uh, support tiers to choose from. And if you are in the $5 per month tier, you will get uh, access to 15 to 20 minutes of additional audio from each episode. If you're already supporting us via Patreon, we just want to say thank you so much for your support. It helps so much more than you know. Second, uh, Musea isn't just a podcast. We are also a lab. Uh, Our focus is on producing museum quality prints for professional photographers. We live in a very temporary world, uh, but we believe in the honoring of meaningful work through archival prints. That's why we use museum-grade materials and focus on producing prints that will last over 100 years. If you need help with archival printing, matting, or framing, visit our site at museadlab.com. And let's get back to the show. How has building a career on editorial photography, how has it changed in 30 years? Like what, what struggles and just things you have to deal with now that you didn't have to deal with? You know, in terms of the basic structure, it's about the same. I mean, it's funny because, you know, obviously I've been doing this a long time and people know who I am. But, you know, when I get an assignment, I, I tackle it and deal with it the same way someone who's like half my age would. You know, like, you know, I do the research. I think about it. I, you know, the practicalities, the budget are probably going to be pretty much the same way. You know, being, you know, in my, would be if I was 26, you know. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really not that different in a way. I mean, I think I have maybe more tools at my disposal and I kind of have, uh, you know, I've, I certain have, I've, I've learned certain things. So maybe I'm less nervous than I would have been when I was younger. But um, in terms of the structure, it's about the same. I mean, the, the thing that's kind of strange is that, you know, you're, you do this story and then it comes out in the magazine. And then, like a week later, they put it online, and then that's really where when it comes comes to life in a weird way. Like, you know, when I get tear sheets sent to me physically, it feels kind of weird, you know. Now, even though I've been doing this for thirty years, it, it, I'm already so adjusted to the you know working things off my computer or mobile mobile devices that it's strange to get a physical tear sheet. And then uh, inevitably, I end up scanning it and then you know putting it online, which is just bizarre, you know. How do you balance? getting some of the shots that you want uh, and also compounding it when you're having like uh, a client's like PR team. I mean, I, I'm assuming you're, you have to, cause you're clearing something would get an okay with an idea with a client, but then you also have to clear it. Is it just the same thing? Like you just, if they veto it, you got more people to get through. And then if they veto it, you just have to go through, go to plan D or C or whatever. When I'm on a shoot front of mind is the client and their needs and wants. So I'm making sure that I'm getting the shots they want, the ideas they want to get through, that's that's where my priorities are at in terms of the order of the shot, in terms of, you know, the amount of time spent, in terms of, you know, whatever persuasion needs to happen. That's all focused on what the client's wants and needs are. So because of that, the the shots that are kind of more for me are more kind of inclined, like that may be a little more like odd or, or quiet or whatever that I might want for myself. I in a way I prepare those shots more ahead of time i kind of think them through more ahead so that if there is time and there is you know cooperation to do those shots i can eat those shots out judiciously when we're actually on set so that the client still takes precedent but i can still work out stuff for me and of course you know those shots for me might be of interest to the client as well and oftentimes they use them which is great once i kind of get down to a kind of list of ideas that that looks like i'm going to go into the shoot with 
I will take the ideas that the ideas that are very simple that involve maybe just like a simple gesture or a pose uh, or just a, a very kind of modest prop. I'll just keep those in my back pocket. I won't tell my client, and I won't tell the subject or their publicist beforehand. So I'll just have those in my back pocket, and I can just bring them out if I see an opportunity on set when we're there live. Ideas that are a little more complicated um, and you know certainly involve any kind of uh, you know elaborate propping or locations. Those ones I will go to the magazine and I'll I'll present them you know kind of formally in an email or on a phone call and say hey, would you guys want to try this? And, and the magazines will do similar with me. They'll come to me with ideas and say, hey, we have this in mind. You know, do you think we could do that? And so those ideas that are rather complicated, you know, in working with the magazine, we'll decide which ones we want to go to the publicist with. Um, you know, anything that's relatively complicated, that obviously, you know, if you can make an argument of, hey, I thought of this on the way to the shoot, then you can kind of like, you don't have to really present that. But something that involves a costume or you know, like a fairly elaborate proper location, you know, you can't pretend like you just thought of it in the way way over. You know, you have to, you have to get that cleared by them because otherwise they're going to feel like they've not been respected, which which is totally reasonable. So those ones will be passed by the publicist and and then we'll deal with their notes and feedback. And, you know, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, sometimes they say no, and it ends up being more difficult for them because then we come to them with even weirder ideas and then they they kind of, at some point, they have to say yes to something. So it, it sometimes takes sort of strange directions. But, you know, I mean, the way that's kind of not my problem is sort of the magazine's problem at that point um, because they're the, you know, they're the point person to deal with the publicist before the shoot. On the shoot, I treat the publicist as, I kind of treat them as a second client, really. Like, you know, my, oftentimes my client is, is not even on set. So it's me, the subject, and then the publicist. So... I've got the publicist there, but not my client. And that ends up being, you know, kind of an unusual power dynamic because I end up, in a sense, representing myself and the client. And so I have to, you know, kind of battle for our ideas and our time. I mean, it's not unusual that, you know, five to eight minutes into a shoot, the publicist is like, all right, let's wrap it up. And I'm like, well, no, you know, we were told we have a half an hour and I, and I really need that half an hour. We have a lot of shots to do and the, the client expects them. And, you know, we... We, you know, we need, we need, we need all that time, and I plan on using it. And I have to kind of, you know, in a nice way, in a polite way, I have to put my foot down and be clear, like, this is what we expect to do. Now, they can push back and say, well, you know, we're leaving in 10 minutes or whatever they say, and if that happens, then, of course, I have to, you know, kind of report back to my client and explain, you know, what happened. Uh, but usually it doesn't happen. Usually, they, usually if I, you know, push back, they will respect the time that they've promised. Um, and it's always civil, and it's always like, you know, one thing I've, I've learned, uh, I learned the hard way that I need to include the publicist in the conversation, uh, you know, on set. So, you know, I'm, I, I, I make a point before the, the actual shooting starts to, to talk, at least to some extent, with the publicist about what's going to happen in the next few hours. Uh, and I'll tell them at least some of the ideas of what are, gonna, are likely to happen, or at least we want to try. And... And you know when I do so, it usually uh, it usually goes well, and they they you know they feel included and they feel like they're part of the conversation, and that's really kind of half the battle. I was looking through a lot of the photo stories you have in the towards the end of the book. I think in there you mentioned that you like to work amongst tension. Um, can you explain 
why that is? Well, you know, there's been some studies showing that the people actually perform better when they're stressed. There's a kind of, um, there's a certain term for, the, for this kind of graph where the more, the more pressure and stress there is, the higher most people perform at a high, higher level of, of excellence. Um, and then it hits a point where the stress is so high that, that they now, you know, they, it, it plunges because they're, you know, the, the level of, of tension is, you know, kind of, is, is too hard to balance. Um, but I think I, on some intuitive level, I understand that about myself. Um, you know, it's funny, I was on the phone with a client this morning talking about an upcoming shoot and, uh, you know, we were kind of laughing about how, you know, when she assigned it to me, the first thing I did was get very nervous. And I, I actually took that as a good sign. It meant that I was, I, it meant that I was engaged and I was interested and that I knew it would be challenging. And that, you know, in a weird way, I guess with my level of experience, I knew that was actually like a good thing. And, and it made the job exciting. And I knew it had, you know, it was an opportunity to do something that was a little different and, um, you know, different than what I've done before, I usually do, and that was really exciting and, um, you know, scary. Um, it made me very nervous, but it meant that I was engaged and I was excited to execute the job and make it something really special. Do you want them to feel a little uneasy? Like, you know, basically reflecting your title of your book, I mean, is that something you, you want them a little uncomfortable uh, versus just really, really comfy? It varies. It varies from shoot to shoot. It varies even within the shoot. I think... One, I've come to realize that the way I deal with the subjects and my team and and their team and all the all those factors that that happen on set is that when I ask someone to do something that might be unusual or surprising, that they just do it, that they don't question me, that um, however nice or not nice or Cold or engaged or whatever I am is all leading to when I say jump, you say how high, rather than I don't want to jump or why, why am I jumping? I want you to, to I want people to follow orders and to do what I request of them. And you know, obviously that doesn't always happen, but my goal is that when I request that you do something, that you do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Tr trust you. Uh, as a photographer, or yeah. or what's with trust? You know, it could be trust. It could be fear. It could be, um, you know, respect. You know, it could be anything. But and I don't necessarily understand it entirely. But you know, when when I ask you to do the fat crazy thing, I I my goal is that you just do it and that you don't uh, question it too much. Mm -hmm. Kind of looking back over you know, just the fact with this book and the 30 years and kind of forced you to look back through all your work. Uh, I'm curious if it made you reflect on, you know, just how substantial that three decades is and how much turmoil has been in the industry. Um, I'm just really curious how, what are some of the keys that you feel like have helped you have a sustainable career? Yes, in the three decades that the book covers, a lot of things have changed in the photographic industry. And I guess I've, I've survived and thrived because I'm comfortable with change. Um, I, you know, I'm like, I, I love history and I love the past and I love tradition, but 
I also look forward to things being different and better in the future. And, um, you know, obviously some changes that happen sort of seem daunting or, or, or not necessarily good for the business, but, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I literally, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if things are bad or good. Like I just, I roll with the punches and I see what I can do to change up the way I approach things to adjust to what's happening in the culture. You know, there's some things I, I do and I spend a lot of time on that I don't necessarily like. Like, I don't like doing Instagram. You know, I mean, I like doing it, but I don't like doing it as a business. But it's, it's an important part of my job that I have to maintain and I have to take seriously because it's a way for me to connect with clients in a regular, um, substantial way. And so, you know, the fact is that it's kind of vaguely humiliating for a a serious photographer to be on a photo platform used by millions of like amateurs, but it, it is what it is. And I, I don't really have a choice uh, if I want to engage with my clients. But if you had to pick um, somebody that you just was really memorable for you, like who was maybe the f- most fun person um, to photograph or just to deal with? Probably one of the most memorable shoots I've ever done was with a sitting president, Barack Obama. You can imagine the, the, the level of anxiety and stress preparing for that shoot. Even with, you know, 25 years behind me at that point, it was, it was, a, it was on a different level. And it is it, something, you know, I literally would lie in bed at night thinking about what might we talk about or how am I going to like this? And it, it's just, you know, it was crazy. And I, and I tried not to be like that, but, you know, you kind of can't help it, you know, it just, you try to not think about it and just push itself to the front of your mind. Um, so actually doing that shoot was pretty insane. I mean, the whole shoot was like four minutes and 22 seconds. It was, you know, it was so brief. And yet I'm in the end, you know, I'm talking about it because I feel like I got a successful image out of it. I feel like I got an image that, that looks like my work, which, you know, getting that, you know, I've seen a lot of shoots with presidents over the years by top photographers. And they almost never get a picture that is on par with their, their regular body of work. So the fact that I got something that, you know, certainly not the most memorable picture I've taken, but people look at it and they're like, wow, that really looks like a Chris Buck picture. That's so weird. And that is something I'm very proud of. Who was maybe the most difficult to work with? It's an endless list. <laughs> Too long to go through. I mean, it's... um. It's funny, I, I did a bunch of shoots with um, a particular assistant, and she worked on the notorious Michelle Bachman shoot with me. She worked on the Simon Cowell shoot, which was, was very difficult, where he was you know, you know, making fun of me the whole time, and he was many hours late. Um, she worked on a shoot with David Cross, who was very cooperative, but not friendly. Um, and, you know, we, we had just finished this shoot with, I'm in Cowell, and we were in my hotel room, you know, eating room service, you know, like late at night. And she said, I used to want to photograph celebrities, but seeing how you're abused and mistreated, like, this is something I don't want for myself. And I said, you've got the wrong takeaway. Think of all these shoots we've done and the amazing pictures we've walked out with. I'm not there to get respect. I'm not there to be having a nice experience or having fun with Simon Cowell. I'm there to make a great image. And if I can walk out with one or two awesome pictures, nothing else matters. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, the book is absolutely 
amazing. Um, so I, I've got a copy. Um, so hopefully anybody listening will go and get a copy. It's uh, it's worth it, and it's definitely a good. It's a fantastic study on portraiture. If somebody's wanting to be learn great portraiture, highly. I mean, your book is at the you know near the top of my list. So great job. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Chris Buck. If you support the Museum Podcast through the $5 per month tier on our Patreon page, you will get additional audio where Chris tells a story about his shoot with Billy Bob Thornton. And you'll also hear his advice to aspiring portrait photographers. If you want to listen to the additional interview segment with Chris Buck, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash musea and sign up for the $5 per month tier. And you'll get all the extra audio from all of our interviews. Uh, We do this for every episode and it's our way of saying thank you for supporting the podcast. Um, If you're new to Patreon, uh, the website is patreon.com slash musea, M-U-S-E-A. Our theme music is by Ukeo. You can find him on SoundCloud. You spell his name U-K-I-Y-O. Editing was done by Chase Caster. Thanks so much for listening.